Good morning. Good morning. For those online, as you can see, we're somewhere different today here in uh, the Chattanooga area. They have an annual event over at the courthouse, and once a year we make a sojourn over to the Hamilton Community Church, and we want to thank the Hamilton Community Church for graciously allowing us to meet in their facility today. So let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study today. We ask that your spirit will be with us, that we will learn of you and draw closer together in the unity of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number nine in the quarter of the Holy Spirit and spirituality. And the title is The Holy Spirit and the Church. And the memory text is from Ephesians 4, 3 through 5, which reads, Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What does it mean, unity of the Spirit? And I put that out because in the second paragraph of the lesson, the lesson uses this sentence. The Spirit-inspired Bible is the foundation of the theological unity of the church. Is there a difference between unity of the Spirit and theological unity? Yes. Is the Bible speaking of unity where the theological unity is speaking of uniformity? Are there differences between unity and uniformity? So unity of the Spirit. See if this, this is what I've suggested. See if you agree, and if not, how would you refine it? Unity of the Spirit is unity of character, of method, of motive. We love God and others more than self. We practice the principles of God's kingdom, of presenting truth and love and leaving people free. Yet we may have different ideas about some points of theology. Which horn on which beast represents which state, we might have differences. Because we come from different backgrounds, different perspectives, different levels of maturity. Can a persons who are united in spirit, let me put it this way, can persons be united in spirit who were baptized in different ways? Yes. Attend church on different days. Where or do not wear jewelry. Partake of communion in different ways. Who have different numbers of wives. I don't know about that one. Well, uh, what I'm about to tell you is historical. In the 1980s, the Seventh-day Adventist Church grappled with this issue because they were, uh, evan- they were evangelists going around the world and they were converting people in cultures where polygamy was practiced. And a gentleman is converted, and he is told that he must give up all but one of his wives. But he says, if I do that, the, the women will be outcast in our society. They won't be employed. They might have to work as prostitutes. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to do that to them. If the church took the position that you must do that, but he says, I don't, who's got unity of the spirit of love and who doesn't? How about if he says, well, I'll be glad to get rid of all but one. I'll get rid of... I'll keep number two. Well, no, you must keep number one, your first wife. But my first wife was arranged with my parents when I was three. I never chose her and I didn't love her. I chose number two and she's the one I love. Well, this is not a hypothetical. This is historic. This is reality. Fortunately, well, let me ask you this. What do you think unity of love would do? What would the conclusion be if we have unity of the Spirit? 
Well, maybe no more after that. <laughs> but but not to injure. Love wouldn't t- toss them out into a situation where they would be cruelly treated, would they? No. And so that's actually my understanding of the position that the church came to was if you're converted in that circumstance, that you stay in that circumstance. That you don't add injury. Love doesn't injure or cause harm. Love does no harm, is what the scripture says. Is division, division, what's break, what breaks down unity in Christ? Unity is the opposite of division. Division is the opposite of unity. Is, is division, what breaks down that unity in Christ from believing differently about practices like baptism, a communion, day of worship? Is that what brings division? Or from believing differently about God and his law, i.e. seeing laws impose rules like humans make versus seeing law as design law, how reality is built. Where's the real division have its origins and seeds? Ultimately, I think it always comes back to what kind of God and, and how we see his law. Is unity found in agreement on the right definitions of words and rituals or in coming to the unity of heart motive that we love others more than self and grant others the freedom to see it differently? Where does real unity come from? Yes. God takes people where they're at and that doesn't mean that they're all going to start at the same place and have the same ideas but the relationship to others becomes a loving, caring relationship. And how do you deal with, for example, Matthew 18? The disciples are having an argument. Who's going to be greatest in heaven? What's he do? He puts a child, and in that time, women and children had no real standing. Puts a child in the middle of them. He says, now, unless you're converted like a child, you'll never get there. So, so this is a great illustration to bring up. So when the, when, when the apostles are arguing about who was going to be the greatest, were they at that moment in unity or were they having division? And was the division because the apostles believed differently about the laws of Moses? Or the apostles believed differently about circumcision? Or the apostles believed differently about Sabbath? Or the po- apostles believed differently about, about the health and dietary laws? Or did they have pretty much uniformity on the doctrinal issues? Where was their division coming? Self. Condition of heart. One wanted to be exalted higher than the other. It was a heart condition, not a doctrinal condition. Well, more than that, a child is unable cognitively to work out all the details that we think of as doctrine. Again, so the illustration is it's not about doctrine, it's about the condition of heart. The child has a heart that loves and trusts and is open to learn and grow. All those things are true of the child, right? Yeah, that's a great illustration. So if we look at this, division comes from people operating level four and below. A rules-oriented approach. Law is a system of rules, codified uh, lists that we must conform to, and if you break them, you must be punished. This type of thinking always divides. And the laws and the rules with different churches change over different times. Only if it's level four and below. However, the law of respiration applies to all denominations. The law of gravity applies to all denominations. When we come back to design law, the divisions evaporate and we find unity. We come back to design law. So this is a section out of my new book, The God-Shaped Heart, which is going to come out in August, which I think demonstrates this point. Just a small little story. It is love and love only that unites, that overcomes rules, that transcends arbitrary laws and supersedes doctrinal differences. It is love that heals the heart. 
January 23, 1943, the SS Dorchester sailed from New York on its way to Greenland, transporting over 900 soldiers for the Allied war effort in World War II. Aboard were four chaplains, Methodist pastor George L. Fox, Roman Catholic priest John P. Washington, Reform Rabbi Alexander D. Goode, and Reformed Church in America minister Clark V. Poling. During the early morning hours of February 3, 1943, the Dorchester was torpedoed by the German U-boat U-223. As the men were desperate to escape the sinking ship, the chaplains calmed the men and helped organize the evacuation. When the supply of life jackets ran out before each man had one, the chaplains removed their own life jackets and gave them to others. They helped as many men as they could into the lifeboats, and then as the ship went down, the chaplains linked arms and began to sing hymns and pray for the safety of the men. One survivor's report. As I swam away from the ship, I looked back. The flares had lighted everything. The bow came up high, and she slid under. The last thing I saw, the four chaplains were up there praying for the safety of the men. They had done everything they could. I did not see them again. They themselves did not have a chance without their life jackets. Grady Clark, survivor. The freezing waters didn't differentiate between Protestant, Jew, or Catholic. When Rabbi Gude offered his life jacket to a desperate soldier, it didn't matter what beliefs that soldier held. Design law doesn't make distinctions between people. Doctrine didn't matter. Liturgy didn't matter. Bible version didn't matter. Denomination didn't matter. Method of Baptist didn't matter. Method of Baptism didn't matter. What mattered? Love. Selfless love. Love that gives. Love that seeks to help others. It is love that heals. Love that unites. Love that transforms the heart. Sunday's lesson. Any comments, questions about that story? Doesn't it illustrate the point? This is what it will come down to. That's why it says in Revelation about those who are ready for translation when Christ comes, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're not driven by survival of the fittest, survival to uh, drive to survive. They're driven by love for others. They're willing to sacrifice their life for others. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph states, the Holy Spirit unites us in manifold wisdom, excuse me, in manifold ways. We would not exist as a church if the Holy Spirit did not first unite us with Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Through the Holy Spirit, we are effectually united to Christ himself. Being united with Christ is the foundation of all the blessings of salvation, because all we have in the Lord comes from him. Our adoption as sons and daughters of Christ, our justification as well as our sanctification, our living victorious life over sin, and our final glorification are all received through our union with Christ. Thus, he must be the foundation of our entire Christian experience. What does it mean to be effectually united with Christ? Is it like the United States of America? Different states, different people, making a legal bond of unity? Or is our unity with Christ something much more significant and different than a legal unity of the states? Yes. Romans 2 and Jeremiah 31 speak about those that have no knowledge of Scripture but are true to conscience. So, in essence, a relationship being led by the Spirit, does the Spirit take us where we're at at a given time and motivate us to do what would be the most meaningful, caring thing at that time, regardless of how we view 
doctrines and those who had no scripture still had a relationship. So the unity is not unity of doctrinal definitions, but a unity of heart and principles and motives. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, This is out of the book, a devotional book called Our High Calling. Our High Calling. It says, quoting 1 John 17, 21, that they may be one, as thou, Father, art me, and I in thee, but they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The solemn, earnest prayer of Christ, reaching down along the line of our time, what a position is this for fallen man to attain through obedience? Pause. When you hear the word obedience, what law lens are you looking through? Level four and below, human rules. This is a list. Conform, do it, or else. Level five and above, how life is constructed to operate, and health is only in harmony with living in, God, in harmony with God's design, obedience. Do you see it in the biblical sense, where the word in the New Testament, obey or obedience, is the Greek word is hypokue, which means a humble willingness to listen, like the child, and to learn, and to grow, and to follow truth. So, what a position for fallen man to attain through obedience, oneness with God through Jesus Christ. To what heights are we permitted to rise if we will have respect unto recompense of reward? It's old English, isn't it? We are to receive power from God that human nature, under the divine working, may not always be perverted and not always be under the depraving, corrupting influence of sin. Human nature, through Christ Jesus, becomes allied to angels, yes, even to the great God. Those who are truly connected with God will not be at variance with one another. His spirit ruling in their hearts will create harmony, love, and unity. The opposite of this working, the opposite of this works in the children of Satan. There is with them a continual contradiction. Strife and envy, jealousy are the ruling elements. The characteristics of the Christian is the meekness of Christ. Benevolence, kindness, mercy, and love originate from infinite wisdom, while the opposite is the unholy fruit of a heart that is not in harmony with Jesus Christ. In union there is strength. In division there is weakness and defeat. The most convincing argument we can give to the world of Christ's mission is to be found in perfect unity. In proportion to our unity with Christ will be our power to save souls. What do you hear unity to be in this description? Unity. Unity of what? Did you hear anything about unity of... Yes. Part of a the, the, the bigger thing. You are an integral part of a bigger thing, just like the illustration of the vine and, and branches or... The body and its parts. The body and a part. A toe is only alive if it remains united with the life giver. So, any other thoughts? Did you hear the emphasis on unity of doctrinal definitions? Unity on atonement models. Mm-hmm. No, you didn't hear that. You heard unity of disposition, character, heart, love, caring for other people. Second paragraph states... Through the Spirit, we have access to God the Father. Jesus is the rock, the foundation of our salvation, the one on whom all other parts of the whole building are erected. 
They're using a metaphor, metaphor of a building being erected. Jesus is the rock upon which the church is built. When you hear this metaphor of a building, what do you think? Do your mind instantly think, that's the heavenly sanctuary, the sanctuary that is to be cleansed after the 2300 days uh, before Christ's coming. Is that what your mind thinks, or does your mind think something else? Is there a different building that Christ is building? Do you remember Zechariah's prophecy? The branch, the one who's called the branch with a capital B, will branch out from his place to build what? What's it say? What's he branching out to build? Anybody remember? His temple. He's branching out to build his temple. What do you say to Peter? Your name is Peter, pebble, little stone, rock, but on this rock I will build my church. What did Peter say? That Christ is the chief cornerstone. And we together being built together into a, Peter and Paul together, into a house for the Lord. Do we see it that way? Or do we see that the heavenly sanctuary is built out of brick, mortar, gold, silver, inanimate materials? Hmm. The bottom paragraph states, in every way possible without compromising what cannot be compromised, in every way without compromising what cannot be compromised, we need to seek for the unity in the fellowship of the believers. So question, what cannot be compromised? The dress code? Natural law. Sabbath behavior, eating out on Sabbath or not. Which day is the Sabbath? Can we compromise that? In other words, can people be saved who worship on Sunday? Or Wednesday? Or Tuesday? Can people be lost who keep the Sabbath? Well, we might even use this word, religiously. Like maybe they want Christ off the cross by sunset so they can go home and keep the Sabbath. What about method of baptism? Can we compromise the method? Can people be saved who are sprinkled? What about communion? How about if people believe as they partake of communion, it actually turns into the literal flesh of, of Christ. They believe transubstantiation. Does that mean they'll be lost? Because they believe that idea. How about ordination of women? Can we compromise? This is not conformity. It's unity. Ah, see, it's right. How about accepting homosexuals into the church? What can I, I'm just putting ideas out here, guys. What cannot be compromised? The Bible says, "Come as you are." It, it says we shouldn't compromise what we cannot compromise. What What is it that we cannot compromise? The character of God. The character of God, the love, the principles of His kingdom. How reality is actually constructed to work. Because, why can't we compromise it? Because God's law, rightly understood, cannot be compromised. Jesus said, the heavens and earth would fall away if one minor change were made to God's law. I think I told you of the one report that came out on on the law of gravity. If gravity were changed by one to the 10 to the 60th power, that would be a a one with 60 zeros behind it. If it was changed by as, as little as one to the 60th power, life as we know it wouldn't exist. You can't change God's law because God's laws are the protocols upon which all reality is actually constructed. There's no compromise. You can't do it. It's not possible. You can't vote in committee that on bad pollen and smoke days, remember the smoke days we had in, was it November, December here? So bad. On those days, we don't have to breathe if you're a member of this church. It doesn't work. You can't change that law. 
If you understand and think that way, then it makes perfect sense. We can't compromise God's law. Because to try, you can only break it. And if you break it, it's always damaging to those who break it. Always. You can't avoid the injury. Now, through God, through, through Christ, God working through Christ and the Spirit can heal if you haven't been damaged beyond healing. There is a damage beyond healing. But if you haven't been damaged beyond healing, you can be healed and restored. That's what the whole plan of salvation is, to heal and restore those who are damaged by sin. But you can't avoid the damage. Can you? Does anybody know a way you can sin and avoid being damaged? It's not possible. But ritual, metaphor, religious rules, doctrinal definitions, all of those can be compromised as long as the person doesn't compromise God's design for life, which is the law of love. Consider the story of the Good Samaritan. In the story, if you think, well, man, you're really getting out there. You're really kind of undermining the whole structure of the system now. Story of the Good Samaritan. Who in the story was the one that was right with God? The Samaritan, the Levite, or the priest? The Samaritan was right with God. Do we have any evidence that the Samaritan ever sacrificed at temple? Kept the Sabbath, ate a kosher diet, was circumcised. Any evidence that the Samaritan did anything that their law required? Yet he was right. This is not possible. He cannot be right. This is why it offended them. He cannot be right. I don't know what you're trying to teach us here, but he can't be because he's not keeping the law. He doesn't have the right doctrines. He hasn't attested to the right faith. But his heart was right. And this is what Christ is trying to teach him. It's about character. It's about transforming the inner man. Yes? Well, you know, at Christ's time, the religious leaders argued over how you kept 613 passages of Scripture. Yes. And yet they did not relate to those in need. And I think, you know, Christ brought up some of these things, and he made things in one sense far more relational than the 613 things. And you can still look them up on the Internet and read them if you want. Now, back to those things we just mentioned, sacrifice the temple, Sabbath keeping, kosher diet, circumcision, all the things they were doing, you understand there was a purpose. There was a purpose for all of those things. Teaching. Object lessons. Circumcision of the heart rather than circumcision of the body, for instance. Uh, The whole temple system was all just a big theater to act out the plan to heal and to save, demonstrating God's law of love and action. The kosher diet and the things that you eat were design law stuff. If you eat in this way, you're healthier. If you deviate from this, it'll destroy you because these are the laws of health. This is how my, my kingdom works. It was all designed to teach. There's a problem, though, when we fail to see the reality past the symbols, past the metaphor, The letters T-R-E-E, T-R-E-E, are symbolic representation of a tree. They are not a tree. It would be a real problem if people took letters, big old block letters, and planted in their yard hoping to get fruit. And that's what happens in the church. That's what's happened to them. They're planting these block letters, these symbols, and they're tending to the symbols hoping they're going to get spiritual fruit. But they're dead. There's nothing there. Monday's lesson, first paragraph states, It is the Holy Spirit who unites us into one body of believers. Public entrance into Christ's spiritual kingdom is through baptism. We are baptized into a specific church body. Thus, baptism has a distinct 
communal dimension an important communal implication. As for followers of Christ, we cannot live by ourselves. We all need the support, encouragement, and help of others. And we certainly cannot fulfill the divine mission alone. That is why God created the church. To follow Christ means to follow him in, in the fellowship of other believers. Thus, baptism and church have a visible component to them. As I read this, I was a little confused. Because if you notice in the one sentence it says that baptism is into Christ's spiritual kingdom. And the very next sentence it says, baptism is into a specific church body. Are those the same thing? You're voted into the church. You are baptized into a relation with Christ. It says we are baptized into a specific church body. That, that isn't the way it is. Actually, you are baptized, if you have been baptized into a different church body, and you come and join say the Seventh-day Adventist Church, you're voted in. You've already been baptized. That's correct. So the technical, there's a vote that has to take place to the church membership to receive you. But has the church merged the ceremony with the membership vote? As soon as the person is baptized, what does the pastor say? Do I have a motion to accept them into membership? Motion second. All in favor, aye. Let's give them an applause. Isn't that how it works? It instantly works that way. But I'm making a distinction because I think there is a distinction being baptized into Christ and being baptized into and or voted into an organization or a system. Are denominations part of God's plan? Or are denominations evidence of the infection of sin and the disunity of God's church? Did God design that when he built his church, founded on Christ as the chief cornerstone, the apostles, the foundation, that it would fragment into 34,000 different Christian groups that exist today? Was that his plan? No, it was not. All this fragmentation is evidence of an infection. An infection in the hearts and minds of men, an infection in the thought, an infection in the theologies. Is it God's plan that we baptize into thousands of denominations or we baptize into Christ? I think we all agree that we are baptized into Christ. The church invisible when we are baptized. And then some organizations will merge very quickly thereafter denominational uh, membership with, with that event. But one can be baptized into Christ without joining a denomination. Next paragraph says, The act of being buried with Jesus Christ through baptism into death, into the watery grave, and being raised to new life in fellowship with Jesus and our Lord Savior represents the crucifixion of the old life and the public confession of accepting Christ as our Savior. And at the bottom it says, um, oh, uh, we'll get it to it in a moment. The question is, is it a requirement to salvation to be baptized? Is it requirement to salvation to be immersed in water or sprinkled by water? Or is this a public ceremony which has a purpose different than the salvation of the individual? If we say that immersion in water is required for salvation, which many Christians say, you can't be saved until you're baptized in water, then what about the people who live before the time of Christ? Enoch and Elijah, do we have any evidence that they were baptized in water? But they're in heaven. I think they're in a good standing with Christ. How about the thief on the cross? Any evidence that he was baptized? 
What about the heathens who was mentioned earlier, who through Romans chapter, Paul says Romans 2, they've never heard the law, the Torah, but they do by nature the things contained in the law, showing the law has been written on their heart, which is the new covenant experience. They're not baptized, but they're part of God's family and they'll be in heaven. How does that work? We have evidence that there will be people, maybe millions, who will be in heaven who never were immersed or sprinkled by water. But the Bible says that there's one faith and one baptism. What does that mean? Do we think level four and below? Are we thinking like children, immaturity, don't, not, not acquainted with righteousness, Romans 5? So one baptism, so it has to be in one methodology, one way, and if you don't do it this way, then you haven't been really baptized, and so you people are lost because you were sprinkled or you were immersed, and we have arguments back and forth between the organizational ways of baptism or the right words weren't said because they didn't say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They said the name of, of Jesus instead, and they should have said Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and if they didn't say it right, then it doesn't count, which is all the silly things that people do. Or it wasn't done in the right place. It only really counts if you go to Israel and are baptized in the Jordan. There are people who think this way. Yes? Why did, did Paul have the, the believers that were already baptized in the John's baptism be rebaptized? That's what we're getting to. I, I didn't bring that up, but it'll fit right in with our answer about the purpose. Baptism is the transliteration of the word baptismo. And it simply means to immerse. That's what it means, the Greek word, to immerse. Is there an immersion with which all who are saved must experience? Yes, it's the immersion of the heart and the mind into the living water of Jesus Christ so that their character is renewed. Selfishness and fear are washed away and a new heart and a right spirit is rebuilt within and they're immersed in their inner being. This is the washing of the Holy Spirit it talks about, that Paul talks about. All who are saved experience that immersion of their self into Jesus Christ. You can't be saved without that. Anybody disagree with that? That's the true baptism, the one baptism, the immersion of the, of the self into the love of Jesus Christ and his character. Then what's the purpose of the ritual baptism, and why did Paul say for these people to be baptized again? It's something other than salvation. Salvation is achieved through the immersion of the heart and the mind into Christ. Water baptism, however, is a public ceremony to assist the community in achieving unity by accepting into fellowship those who've been living in dissent. This is what it's for. What's the point of a public wedding in all cultures historically? Why the public wedding? What's it's, regardless of how it's carried out, there's a purpose of the public wedding. It's a, it's a community acknowledgement, acceptance, and support of the new status of the couple, that they have just shifted their status. And the community now acknowledges and accepts their new status in the, in the community. That's the purpose of the, of the wedding. Oh, comment, yes. Would the story of Nicodemus and Christ telling how to be saved, would that clear up some of this? Actually, I think it makes it more confusing. Oh, it does? I, do, I think it does. Because if you, look, if, you, if you read the story of Nicodemus, in the story where he's talking to Christ, Jesus said, unless you be born, a, born again. Now, Christ is talking about the true heart transformation. That's the baptism of the heart and mind. Nicodemus says, how can you go back inside your mother's womb and be born again? He's being very concrete, very literal. And Jesus said, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, and many people say, unless you then have water immersion, immersion in the water, 
in the physical baptism, and I think they misread Christ. I don't think Christ is actually talking about that. He's saying to Nicodemus, and because what did Nicodemus' immediate question was, how can a man go back in his mother's womb and be born again? Unless you're born of water, first birth, because what happens before a baby's born? The water bursts. Water bursts. There's a water birth. And then you're born of the Spirit. You have to be born into the world before you can be reborn into the kingdom of Christ. And I think that's what he's saying. But many people confuse that and use that to support the idea you can't be saved unless you've been, born, uh, been, been dipped in the, in the physical H2O on planet Earth. And I think we've already given evidence that there'll be millions saved. Enoch and Elijah, again, examples, who never were immersed, but they have been saved. So you can be saved. But they did get born into the world first. Of water. Yes, of water. So what's the point, though? Back to the question of the physical community, the, the, the ceremony. What's the point? Because it's an initiation rite. And all cultures have initiation rites. Tribes, gangs, fraternities, military units to publicly, communally accept the change in status and be supported by the community in their new role and their new status. Like a bar mitzvah. What's the purpose of the bar mitzvah? You're not a child anymore. You're a man in the culture, in the tribe. You're an adult now. Graduation ceremony, pinning ceremonies, all these things are for the community to not. So why did he have them rebaptized? Because in the community there was concern. They weren't baptized. The community was starting to have the vision. You were baptized into Paul. You were baptized into Paulus. You were baptized into John. You weren't baptized into Christ. Let's baptize into Christ. Do away with the division. There's no argument now. They've done it right. It wasn't because there was a necessity for their salvation. It was because there was the, the concern about fragmentation in the, in the body. So no big deal. It's not going to hurt you to be dunked again. Do it. Do away with the division. Everybody's now comfortable. You've gone through the same rituals as everybody else. Your initiation is over. The lesson states in the bottom, though, baptism is a positive step with which all who wish to be acknowledged under the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit must comply. In other words, baptism marks the true repentance, the crucifixion of the old life, and it signals the new birth and conversion. What do you hear when they say, must comply? Read carefully. They're not wrong if you read what they said. All who want to be acknowledged must comply. It's not at all who want to be saved must comply. This is about the community accepting you as a follower of Christ, not about you actually being a follower of Christ. But the community won't accept you as a Christian if you don't go through the initiation, if you don't go through the ritual, if you don't allow yourself to take a public stand and be baptized, and the community say you're not part of this membership, even if you've been reborn in heart. Yes? If we deal with true to conscience, of course, there will be those who never had opportunity or even thought of it or was aware of it. On the other hand, if a person is convicted and they believe that indeed baptism expresses their conviction, uh, then in essence uh, it is something that if you say, well, I'm convicted but I'm not going to do this, you haven't followed in essence the concepts that it, we find in Scripture. If you, if you believe those... Depends on the reason why. Depends completely on the reason why. I know some people who were convicted and they went to do baptism, but they had very bad lung disease and they had tracheas and they were afraid to be dunked under the water because they couldn't hold their breath for, for that long. And so they didn't get baptized, but they really wanted to. 
Okay, so, but there was very, very concerned. Some people love a form below. They were afraid. If I don't get baptized, will I still be able to be saved? I haven't gone through the ritual. Can I be saved if I don't? And they had insecurity and fear based on it because somebody comes along and says, well, but you knew and you didn't do it. If you knew and you didn't do it, maybe you can't be saved. No, it's the reason why. The ritual has no saving power. Anybody want to argue with me on that? None. The saving power is in Jesus Christ in the immersion of the character into the love of Jesus. That's the saving power. But you're right. If, you, if, if your heart's convicted and if you have the ability and you have the opportunity, okay? And by the way, historically, there's some evidence to support that sprinkling wasn't simply a ritualistic thing that came in from ritualistic people, but the sprinkling aspect of baptism may have initiated during the um, persecution of the church when people were being held in the dungeons going out to um, the, um, the forums to be martyred and they were witnessing to other people in the dungeons and some of those people were converted and they saw the love and the peace and the joy of the ones that had went out and they said, how can they have such peace? And the ones still waiting were witnessing. They said, I want to give my heart to Jesus and they but I want to be baptized. And they only had a little bit of water and they sprinkled them. Because that's all they had. And there's some evidence that this is where the whole sprinkling may have started. Well, our, our, well sorry, I'd love to. I'm glad you're giving your heart to the Lord, but we don't have any water. Can't do it. You, you didn't get the right ritual. You're not saved. You have to do the ritual. Can't get saved. Those people saved. Of course they were. Of course they were. Yes. Philip and the eunuch. Philip and the eunuch, of course, what, what, what hinders us? Let's go. And he, of course, he went for the full baptism right then because his heart was convicted. Yes. Yeah, who was around then? You know, there wasn't a public declaration as well. So, so it's not only just the, uh, whether the water immersion is the most important, but also that public declaration does not have to be a part of it as well. Does that make sense? Yes. And so I also put in the notes to be sure that the public ceremony also has a solidifying value in the heart, mind, and character, a, a verifying, validating experience of the person, just like the public wedding ceremony does and any other public ceremony that you go through. Now, you don't have to march at graduation and walk across stage to get your diploma to actually be credentialed from the organization and get your diploma. But that whole ceremony is kind of a, a validating thing and it has a psychological impact on the one who goes through it. Likewise, though, does this. There's an in, is a personal element to it as well. Tuesday's lesson. It says, The primary means by which the Holy Spirit unites us with Christ is through the written word. The Bible is a trustworthy source for knowing Jesus and the will of God. That is why reading Scripture and memorizing its context is so impo- contents is so important. The Bible is the authoritative source for discerning spiritual truth and error. Paul commended the Bereans as noble-minded because they diligently studied the Scriptures, the the search the scriptures in order to find out what they heard was true. Now, we never, I'm going to make this right, we never want to undermine confidence in the Bible, ever. We absolutely believe that the Bible is inspired word of God for God to reveal himself to us, and we have absolute confidence in the scripture. Yet, having accepted the Bible and trusting its reliability, are there still ways that the Bible can be used to cause division rather than unity? See, that's important to recognize. That's important to recognize. How can the Bible be used to cause division rather than unity? 
I'm going to tell you the primary way is by the assumptions people have before they go to the Scripture, and the primary assumption being God's law works like our laws, and therefore we go to the Scripture to find the right code, a code of sins to be shunned and deeds to be done. That's what we're looking for. We need to find the right proper code and the right way to do things, and, and we're going to all, and then we're going to make up our rule list, and we're going to have a rule list kind of like the, the rules in baseball, and, and if you do all the rules, then you're on base and you can't be tugged out, and uh, I mean, this is how people live their life. And they argue. But the Bible itself teaches something different than that. Romans 1.20, Paul says, God's divine nature, seeing what he has made so that men are without excuse. And you look at the life of Jesus. In Jesus' teaching in his public ministry, from your recollection of the Gospels, what did he do the majority of his teaching? Did he quote scripture? Or did he teach parables that were based on real life experiences and nature? What was his teaching, his primary book that he taught from? Now, he did quote scripture in a few places, got up and read the scripture, he quoted it from here, there, quoted it to the, primarily he quoted scripture, though if you notice, you go look at his life, he was primarily quoting the scripture to the theologians who were challenging him. Because his teachings were in harmony with scripture, no question about it, and they were violating Scripture constantly, but he mostly used the Scripture on the theologians. On the people, he taught how reality works. This is nature. This is real life. This is my kingdom. This is how it works. And he's teaching the principles of love that work in real life. And the Scripture, of course, always in harmony with that. Bottom paragraph says, the word of God is truth. The unity of the church is the work of the Spirit with and through the written word of God. The Holy Spirit will never lead us to doubt, criticize, go beyond, or fall short of the Bible teaching. Instead, he makes us appreciate the divine authority of the scripture. The Holy Spirit never draws us away from the written word any more than the living word. Instead, he keeps us in constant, conscious, and willing submission to both. The Bible is the foundational source for all theological unity worldwide. Were we to lessen or weaken our implicit belief in the Bible as God's word of truth to us, the unity of the church would be destroyed. Is having confidence... That's assuming the unity of the church is based on some understanding. It's not based on um, the word. It's based on Christ and, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Brilliant. Great discernment. So the question, based in, in harmony with your comment, is having confidence in the Bible the same thing as agreeing with what other people says it means? No. Even other church leaders? Can you have confidence in the Bible and disagree with what the preacher says it means? Then, it says, were we to lessen or weaken our implicit belief in the Bible as God's word of truth to us, the unity of the church would be destroyed. Does this mean that the key to unity is having implicit confidence in the Bible. If we all just have implicit confidence in the Bible, we will have unity. That's what we need. Is that, is that what it's saying? All who have implicit confidence in the Bible have unity. Do you see there's a problem with that. There are many people who have implicit confidence in the Bible. They trust it, and they use the Bible as a club to beat people up with. They do. Those who constantly wanted Christ and constantly complained of him breaking the law, what were they pointing back to? The first five books of Moses. You're breaking what Moses said to do. That's the Bible. We have implicit faith in the Bible. And you're not following it. He said we we should stone the adulterers. uh, What are you teaching here? 
How many Christians today argue for supremacy of the Bible, yet argue amongst each other, showing very little love? The problem is not resolved by agreeing on the supremacy of the Bible, even though I believe the Bible is God's divine revelation of himself on earth. For many children, those operating level four and below, what Hebrews calls infants still are milk and therefore not acquainted with righteousness, attest to the supremacy of the Bible. The problem, again, is viewing it through that imposed law lens, thinking you can, it's, you search the scriptures, thinking in them you find eternal life. In other words, thinking you can find the right code, the right code of, of behaviors to do, and then you have eternal life. But they are the teach of me. Back to what's been said, a relation, coming back to a trust relation with Christ. Memory text on Wednesday's lesson is Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. It says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And then the first paragraph states, unity in faith and doctrine is accomplished only in faithfulness to the word of God. The Lord, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, forms a spiritual bond with every believer. The same new birth generated by the Holy Spirit, the same obedience to the word of God enabled by the Holy Spirit, leads to a unity of faith and practice that transcends all human cultural differences. Do you have concerns with the first paragraph after reading the Bible verse? Read the Bible verse, which is at the top of the page. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And then the first sentence of the paragraph says, unity in faith and doctrine. Does the scripture say that we have one doctrine? Or is that an insertion? Why do you think the Bible does not say we have unity of doctrine? The apostles did not see it all the same. Uh, those that came out of Judaism tried to impose the rituals of Judaism on those that they converted. And uh, Paul, who had a Gentile, uh, came from a Gentile city, uh, had a different perspective. And he recognized that those who were not Jews wouldn't be having to do all of the ritual things that they were that the, uh, some of the other apostles expected. And you have the idea of uh, Paul criticizing when people from Jerusalem went up and tried to make people conform to what they thought should be done. So let me ask you this question about this idea of unity of doctrine. When Jesus comes the second time, and all the saved are winging their way to heaven, their loved ones having been raised, and we join together in the clouds to meet him in the air for the first time, do you think there will be one human being that at that point knows correctly 100% of every text of the Bible? Only Jesus himself. Only Jesus himself. All of the saved, though, coming up will have errors in their understanding. I thought, I thought that meant that. I, I was taught my whole life that that scripture applied to this. See, but they say we'll have unity. Of doctrine, I don't think we'll ever have unity of doctrine until the hereafter. In the hereafter, we will have unity because all Paul talks about when, right now, we're seeing through a dark, misty cloud uh, things that are kind of hard to understand. But then, then we will see face to face plainly and have all mysteries taken away. But right now, we don't. 
This idea that we all must come to the same cognitive appreciation and definition of words is, is divisive to the church. We must come to the same love for people. Yes. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. It's not for new bodies, so it can't be that. It, it can't be because they're warring, and, that's, and so it's trying to solve wars. The healing of the trees of, of the tree of life are for a purpose. So when Christ comes, will there be questions that people still have left unanswered? But, while I don't think there'll be one person who has the data all right, will all those who are saved have overcome the domination of selfishness in their trust relationship with Jesus Christ? Will all the saved love God and others more than self? Will all the saved present the truth as they understand it in love, but leave others free? And they won't coerce. Notice the, the principles of the beastly system. No one can buy or sell save him who has the mark. In other words, we will use power to pressure and coerce people. You better believe or else this way. This is coercive power. The saved, none, none of the saved will do that. The saved will say, here's the truth. We love you. Um, we encourage you to study it out, but if you come to a different conclusion, our love for you won't change. Your health might change. If you conclude that cigarette smoking is really healthy for you, we've tried to give you the data, the science behind it, the truth, but we're going to leave you free. And if you choose to smoke anyway, we're going to love you, but your health is going to be compromised. That's the same for sinful living. We, we're trying to teach you that healthy marriages are, are when two people are in a loving, other-centered, monogamous relationship. Um, but if you and your spouse want to have an open marriage and go out and sleep with lots of people, we, we're counseling you that that's going to be destructive. It's going to hurt you now now we'll love you if you do that but you're going to ruin yourself you see it's going to hurt you it's going to sear your conscience it's going to warp you we love you we don't want that for you we're not going to change we're not going to change our attitude towards you but you can't break god's law without injuring yourself our unity is not a unity of doctrines but of character of god's methods and principles and as we mature, I think, on the other side of eternity, we will all come to a, a unity of understanding of the history of what happened on this world in time, as we all review the evidence for ourselves. What is the unity of faith? See, faith sometimes is used as a stand-in word for a system of beliefs. We are of the faith. We are part of the faithhood of believers. Okay, so sometimes the word faith can mean a system of doctrines and belief. Is that what the Bible is talking about here, unity of faith? Or is it talking more about the functional aspect, not, the, 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 not, not faith as a noun, a system of beliefs, but faith as an verb, an action word, uh, uh, an experience of trust? We all are unity in our faith, our trust, our confidence in God, an experience with him. Our understanding. Our understanding of his trustworthiness. I think, I think all the saved will have an understanding of his trustworthiness. Yes. And an experience in it. Why do you think the Bible... Oh, we, already talk, we already mentioned that. Um, but why does the Bible seem to express things sometimes so precisely and directively? With directives. You know what I mean by Directives. Do this and do that or else. There's many places in the Bible that seems to say that. When I'm teaching a resident how to do surgery, there are certain rules that have to be enforced, otherwise you're in danger. 
Think of a family, a large family, in which the parents are genuinely mature people with other-centered love for their kids. And they have kids of all the age ranges, from, from diapers all the way up to college. It's a large family. Will there be different doctrines, depending on who you ask in the family, on brushing teeth in that family? If you ask a three-year-old, why do you brush your teeth? Is there a doctrine, a teaching that the three-year-old holds as to why we do that? Is there a different doctrine for the 10-year-old? Is there a different doctrine for the 18-year-old? The the three-year-old, because I'll get punished. I won't get my bedtime story. The 10-year-old, because they'll laugh at me at school. We don't want to be laughed at at school. They'll make fun of me. The 18-year-old, I don't want my teeth to decay. Are there different doctrines, different teachings? Yeah, there are, based on maturity level. This is a great metaphor why there's different doctrines in the church because people are trying to explain the purpose of what God has asked us to do from different understandings and maturity levels. And God has asked us to do many things, like a parent asked the child to brush their teeth, but why? Because there is an actual law, design law, second law of thermodynamics, if you don't put energy into a system, it decays. Parents in love don't want their kids' teeth to decay, so they give them instruction to guide them while they're growing up. But in their level of maturity, they may have different teachings, doctrines, reasons that they're giving for it. This is why there's so many different atonement theories. The different atonement theories that... uh, Everybody I've talked to who argue with us, we agree on this. Mankind could not be saved without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was essential for salvation. Yet, we are ostracized if we teach that the reason is different than the reason that they hold. Their reason is, well, he had to pay the legal penalty. And we say, well, you know what? That certain level of understanding and maturity, I can understand why that's taught, and we can see why that was taught. And for the same reason why, at a certain level of understanding, I had to brush my teeth, or else mom would punish me. We get that. But as we mature, we grow past that, and we see that God only gives those instructions to teach us how reality works. And whole, and, and what was the law given? As a schoolmaster. And to quarantine, to protect us from self-injury until we grew up and were led back to Christ. You see, you can't make rules for love. That's why Paul says, love, there's, there's no law for this. But love always seeks, so a parent who loves their child will constantly be seeking the, the eternal best interest of their child. That's what they seek. But they might, in one place, hug, kiss, praise, give presents. In another place, they might dunk them in an ice bath if they've got a high fever and they need to bring that fever down so there's no brain damage. In another place, they might stick a needle in their leg and give them a vaccine. In another place, they might put them in time out. In another place, they might yell with threats because they're riding their tricycle towards the road. The, the Love behaves very differently in many different places, but love is always seeking the same thing. If we don't understand that and we simply have a list of rules, then what happens is we end up hurting rather than loving people. Remember, the woman at the well asked Jesus a question? She asked a doctrinal question. Where should we worship? The Jews say in Jerusalem, we say here, tell me, master, where should we worship? Doctrinal question. What did Jesus do? How did he answer? Anybody remember the answer? It doesn't matter where. It's an issue of heart, mind attitude, trust relationship. That's the issue. The Father is spirit and truth, and he wants worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. It's an issue of the heart, not the doctrine. Profound stuff. Third paragraph. 
The theological foundation of this unity is the word of God. Any appeal to the spirit without the written word can lead to suspect doctrines and practices. At the same time, any appeal to the written word of God without the Holy Spirit dries up the word and makes it barren. Because there is only one Lord, there is only one faith that leads to one baptism. Only in joyful faithfulness to the word of God will we be able to see unity within the church, within our church. And if there is no unity in faith and doctrine, there will be no unity in mission. What is the purpose? Now, they, they emphasize the word doctrine again, so let's talk about that. What is the purpose, the righteous, appropriate, proper purpose of doctrine? Doctrine, teachings, definitions, and, and you know, doctrine. What is the proper, like the way we baptize, communion, um, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the nature of man? What is the purpose of all the doctrine? There's one primary purpose. The truth about God. Thank you. Thank you. And the right way to conceptualize doctrine would be a wheel, God is the center, and every doctrine is a spoke on the wheel that rightly understood leads us or reveals some element or aspect of God to us. That's the right teaching of doctrine. It always brings us, and as you follow spokes on a wheel, they bring you back to the hub. And if you follow doctrine properly, understanding and learning about God, it brings us together into unity. Okay, this is the problem. But what happens is, and what happens with doctrines is they become institutionalized. And instead of being unified on the central question that the, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, that we wage war not as the world does, the central question, we demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, that is the central question, knowledge of God. Instead, we set up stand-alone doctrines, independent with proof text. Sabbath is the seventh day. I've got my little Bible study. I can go through all the scripture texts and show you seventh-day Sabbath is the... And, and then we set up the state of the dead. And we set up all these independent doctrines... Standalone, that becomes test of fellowship, a creed. And, 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 and this set of doctrines defines the Seventh-day Adventist belief system, and you adhere to the set of doctrines, and you become part of the institution, and the doctrines become important to protect the institution from corruption. No longer leading people to Christ. No longer bringing us into unity. Instead, the doctrines become a barrier that separate us from the world who don't hold the same doctrine. If you go to church on Sunday, our doctrines separate. Come out and be separate from her, my people. And how do we separate ourselves? By defining a different set of doctrines. And thus, when we do it this way, guess what? And we merge baptism with voting into membership. We end up baptizing people and indoctrinating people into loyalty to the institution and their security is found in membership in the institution rather than loyalty and security in Jesus Christ. And I can't tell you how many Adventists I know that feel like if they don't attend an Adventist church, their salvation is jeopardized. That their security is institutional affiliation rather than a personal walking journey with Jesus Christ, who the Holy Spirit leads them to minister in his kingdom in the Adventist fellowship. There's a different focus there. If we're following where the Holy Spirit leads, the Holy Spirit might lead you, like Jonah, away from your Jewish fellowship to fellowship with the Ninevites. Oh no, I couldn't do that. I'd be lost if I didn't fellowship with the Adventists. I have to fellowship with them. I couldn't fellowship with the Ninevites. That would be wrong. Worship fish. 
They worship a fish. I can't do that. I can't go over there and fellowship with them and give my witness and tell the, the joy of salvation that I know in Jesus Christ. I can't do that in a fellowship that's not the Adventist institution because I'm loyal to the institution and these doctrines define. And if I don't keep these doctrines, then I'm not saved. Do you see the subtle corruption? Doctrines are fine, but they need to lead us to unity in Jesus Christ. They always connect back to God. Yes. There are doctrines that are very beautiful and very helpful. For example, I can tell a number of stories of people who became Christians when they discovered that there were those that did not believe in eternal hell. They could not reconcile love, mercy, and justice with eternal torture. And I think you're making the point that that doctrine challenged their view of what kind of being God is, and when they had a different doctrine, their view of God changed. It was leading them back to God. And they were able to fellowship with people who did not believe in the eternal hell. And they had other doctrines that pointed to a relationship that was a loving, caring relationship, not just with God, but in helping others. In other words, the doctrine is a thing that transform, helps transform. It is an expression of a relationship that helps transform in a way that people become caring people and exhibit more and more the traits that we see in the life and teachings of Jesus. Or not. Mm-hmm. Because the doctrine will do if, one or the other, depending on the doctrine. Lead us away. That's right. Loving relationships. So maybe testing doctrine by the relation of love and the life and teachings of Jesus and becoming more in caring and helping others. And sometimes the details will come at the right time in the right place. And, and in closing, well said, in conjunction with what you just said, we'll close Thursday's lesson, the primary mission of the church, and here's a quotation from the book Education, page 154. Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish, and he deals the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and all who bear his name. It was, it was to give in his own life an illustration of unselfishness that Jesus came in the form of humanity, and all who accept this principle are to be workers together with him in demonstrating it in practical life. All sin is selfishness. Satan's first sin was a manifestation of selfishness. He sought to grasp power to exalt self. A species of insanity led him to seek to supersede God. The sowing of seeds of selfishness into the human heart was the first result of the entrance of sin into the world. God desires everyone to understand the evil of selfishness and to cooperate with him in in guarding the human family against its terrible deceptive powers. The design of the gospel is to confront this evil by means of remedial missionary work and to destroy its destructive power by establishing enterprises of benevolence. And that was Workers' Bulletin, uh, September 9, 1902. So the first was uh, Education 154. And so you see the mission of the church is to combat selfishness with benevolence and love. And this is the unity that we are to come into. The unity of one faith in one God who was revealed in Jesus Christ, who did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself in the form of a servant. And that is the unity that we are called to come into. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the beautiful character of love that you have manifested and revealed to us through Jesus Christ. All too often we get caught up in the way the world runs, seeking proper definitions and rules and order and enforcement. 
we ask you that you will pour your spirit out, taking all that Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us, help us to have better insight and wisdom and into your kingdom and, and enable us to practice your methods of love and how we treat others. We pray in your holy name. Amen.